Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry we're getting off to a little late start here, but uh, it's a fabulous day at Heritage. We have the opportunity to have the Secretary of the Air Force with us. Um, over the course of the next five or ten minutes, um, we're, we're going to, well, actually much briefer than that, we're going to go through an introduction and then uh, have the Secretary come up and give some remarks. And then we'll go through a question and answer session between the two of us. And then the last probably 25 or uh, so minutes we'll do a uh, question and answer session with the audience. Does that sound like a fair use of our time this morning? Um, if you have a phone, just make sure it's on stun this morning, uh, just uh, to keep it from uh, buzzing in the middle of the, the session. Um, our Secretary of the Air Force is an airman from the get-go. She is the third uh, generation of pilots. She went to the Air Force Academy, and she's got an incredible history all the way up to and including five uh, terms in, in the House. Um, and she's here to talk to us about the state of the Air Force and the budget where we are right now and the need for a supplemental. With little uh, more ado, let me introduce you to the Secretary of the Air Force, the Honorable Heather Wilson, ma'am. Well, thank you, JV. Um, let me talk a little bit about the challenges that we're facing and, of course, uh, the, the uh, budget for fiscal year 20, which is, which is now up on the Hill, and the, the Chief of Staff and I will be testifying uh, three times next week, although, uh, although uh, uh, we, were, we were laughing about it in one of our preparatory sessions earlier this week that we think maybe, maybe we should give up congressional testimony for Lent. <laughs> And, uh, but I'm not sure that would work. I think uh, anyway, we are uh, we are going to be testifying next week on the budget. Um, the budget that we've put forward for fiscal year 20 recognizes the return of great power competition as the defining element of what we have to prepare for uh, in the United States Air Force, um, and that's uh, it's driven by the national defense strategy and the guidance that the chief and I gave was to align the budget uh, of, the, uh, of the Air Force with the national defense strategy. Uh, and we have a situation in which our adversaries are innovating and modernizing faster than we are, and we have to rethink the way in which we can best prepare for the threats of the future. The, one of the blessings of this year is that we actually have a budget, and we had a budget on time on the 1st of, 1st of October. The fiscal year 20 budget proposal is for $165 billion for the United States Air Force. Um, the, uh, the budget that we've put forward continues the gradual increase in the number of airmen. We're also moving some airmen around within our missions, but it'll mean about 4,400 more airmen, increase in end strength, active guard and reserve, make us more ready. It also includes a significant amount for modernization. Um, but in addition to the 4,400 active guard and reserve airmen, 
the f there are funds in the in the proposal for a little more than 5,000 civilians, particularly focused in our depots to increase the um, the maintenance and throughput of our depots to maintain our equipment and improve our readiness. Um, there are a couple of themes in the budget that I think I'll highlight for you. One of them is uh, last year at this time when the chief and I were testifying, one, uh, it was just a few months after the release of the National Defense Strategy. And a member of the Senate said, well, you know, you always come up here and you defend the budget, the, the, the Air Force that you will build within the top line that you've been given. You know, what can we buy for the money that, you, that you've been allocated? Um, but you never really come up here and, and say what you need. So what is the Air Force we need in order to execute the National Defense Strategy? And at the time, neither the chief nor I could answer that question, and we should be able to answer that question. They actually put that into the Defense Authorization Act, and we did a year-long piece of work looking at the threat in the 2025-2030 timeframe, the global operating plans that are most updated, um, and did about between two and 3,000 iterations of, of war games uh, and sim modeling and simulation to, to try to figure out how, at a moderate level of risk, we could execute the national defense strategy in the 2025-2030 timeframe. That report was turned in to the Congress on the 1st of March. The task was also given to two nonprofit entities. One of them has turned in their work. The other one, MITRE, has not yet turned in the work. One of the things that's interesting to me is, uh, you know, the Air Force said we need 386 operational squadrons. Uh, today we have 312. Uh, just in context, when at the start of the, the Gulf War, we had uh, 401. So our estimates of what's required in this reemerged era of great power competition is not as much as we had when we went to, went to war in the Gulf to, to kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Um, the interesting thing is the, the CSBA, the, the, um, the uh, Center for uh, Budget Analysis, the other, the other group that has turned in their work, has said the Air Force is not being uh, uh, – is, is, uh, we'll need more than what the Air Force says. So I think, um, I think the, the conclusion of all of this is that uh, the Air Force is too small for what the nation is asking us to do. And, uh, and over time, we are going to have to increase the size of the force as we also change our operational concepts and our capabilities to be able to fight and win and defend our vital national interests. We are building a more lethal and ready force. Um, in fiscal year 19, we trained a little over 1,200 pilots, a little more than we planned. In fiscal year 20, we will train about 1,480 so at 1,480 pilots. By 2022, we will be training 1,500 pilots a year. That's to address a pilot shortage, but it's not just production of pilots we have to focus on. It's the absorption of those pilots into squadrons and their seasoning, and it's a real focus on retaining the pilots we have, um, not only by trying to get the Department of Transportation and the airline industry to address their increase in need for pilots. We have a national shortage of air crew and pilots. But by making, revitalizing Air Force squadrons so that anyone in their right mind would stay Air Force because they're part of something bigger than themselves, they have great leadership, they have some better control over their lives than we've been able to give pilots in the past, 
um, and we're able to improve retention of the pilots we have. If we take those actions, we've had about 60 initiatives on, on about you know, re pilot retention and making, making uh, a squadron life better for pilots um, and increase our production of pilots. We think, we project that by 2023, 2024 timeframe, we will have recovered from the pilot shortage. We are doing the same with maintainers. The funds that Congress has given us have allowed us to close the gap. Two years ago, we were 4,000 maintainers short in the Air Force. And we are now completely up to speed with our active duty maintainers, and we still have some gaps in the reserve and guard. Um, but we are trying to season those maintainers and get them to be craftsmen at their work. Our budget also includes funds for improvement of ranges, particularly in Nevada and Alaska, uh, but also nationwide. When you think about what does readiness really mean, first and foremost, it's about people. So it's that end strength that's closing the gaps on pilots and maintainers and others. But secondly, it's about their training and, and making sure there's enough space, what they call white space on the calendar, to get the high-end training that's needed and that we have the training ranges that can simulate the high-end fights that we are likely to be facing or we're guided to face in the national defense strategy. We are 15% more ready today than we were two years ago, and 90% of our lead units are ready to fight tonight. That is a change. By 2020, our 204 most relevant tactical squadrons will be 80% ready because we went, through, that means category one, category two levels of readiness. We went through an exercise where we brought together the 50 best people from across the Air Force to focus on readiness and get beyond the kind of hand-waving charts to really understand what do we need to do, where do we need to put the next marginal dollar to recover the readiness of the force. They came up with a plan for us 12 months ago. We've been executing that plan. We just got them back together to do a one-year review and to give us you know, tweaks going forward. Uh, and uh, they gave us a plan to accelerate the readiness recovery by six years by focusing our efforts rather than peanut butter spreading the money around the entire Air Force. So we are, we are moving forward to, to build a more lethal and ready Air Force. While we're focused on readiness and lethality, we can't ignore the future, and that is to build a future force, but to, to field that tomorrow's Air Force faster and smarter. The United States Congress has given us some new authorities with respect to acquisition, because I think they recognized three, four, five years ago that the world is changing, that we are facing a rapidly innovating adversary, and we needed to change the way in which we do business. They gave us new authorities to prototype and experiment, take some risk up front um, in order to reduce risk of programs over the long term. We, uh, we set ourselves a goal 10 months ago to strip 100 years out of Air Force acquisition programs, 100 years. Now, in some ways, you might think, well, you know, that's kind of a, that's, that's kind of a gimmick in a way. Um, if you were waiting for one of those programs and the equipment, it's not so much of a gimmick. But what really is, is a, is a way to change the culture of acquisition. So program managers know that we expect them to tailor their programs to what they really need. And so, so 10 months ago, we said we're going to strip out 100 years of, in, uh, in 12 months. We are now at 78.5 years stripped out of Air Force programs to get capability to the warfighter faster. We are not skipping any steps. It's more, like, uh, it's more like buying a tailored suit rather than a suit off the rack. 
and we expect all of our program managers to operate that way. We have also delegated more authorities. More, you know, uh, three years ago, 75% of the major defense programs that were Air Force programs were actually run by and decisions made by the Office of the Secretary of Defense. That adds a lot of time. Uh, congressional authorities pushed that down. It's now completely flipped. Uh, there are only 11 programs that are still held at the OSD level. <clears throat> I have kept no decisions at my level. There's not a program manager in the Air Force who needs to come to get my approval to move forward with their program uh, because I know that I don't add any value to those decisions. Our responsibility at the headquarters level is to run the system to make sure we have absolutely first-class program managers who are well-trained and educated and know what they need to do and then get them managing their programs, not managing the Pentagon. That is a sea change for the way we're doing acquisition and we're implementing it across the board. We're also trying to move to get more competition, more businesses involved in, 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 um, in uh, providing services and capability to the Air Force. Competition works to keep down prices. We had four major procurements in the last six months where we made decisions. The TX trainer, the next generation trainer for our aircraft, the replacement for the UH-1 Huey helicopter, the GPS-3 satellite system, and competitive launch, launch services for space. In those four programs alone, they were very competitive procurements. And in those four programs alone, the Air Force saved $15 billion from the independent cost estimate because of robust competition. That $15 billion was immediately turned back into budget available to improve the readiness and lethality of the Air Force. Competition works to keep down prices. And we're changing the way we do business with small businesses. You know, we found that with some of our smallest businesses, um, uh, like our Small Business Innovative Research Grants, which are, which are really important for next generation capabilities, we were taking 180 days to do a contract with, with an S you know, We were required to spend $660 million a year in small business innovative research grants. If it takes 100, 180 days is forever for a small business. It's completely unacceptable. So we started driving down the time. We got to about 90 days and we said, okay, we're kind of at the limits of what the system as it's currently designed can do. What if we broke this system? Is it possible to do a one-page contract in one day and get a progress payment the same day? We worked with the lawyers, and we found a way to do it. And then we said, and we tried it out. And then we said, okay, let's do something really different. Let's put out some of our wicked hard problems, and not just in the Federal Register, which no innovative company looks at, um, but on LinkedIn and Google and other kinds of places. And let's ask for no longer than five pages in a pitch deck. We had 417 proposals come into the United States Air Force. Of those, we invited 59 of them to come to New York City with government, um, Air Force program managers and operators, as well as investors. And they pitched their ideas. 51 companies earned an award from the United States Air Force on that day and $8.5 million one-page contracts, average time to contract, 15 minutes. 15 minutes. The fastest we did was three minutes. Um, and 
Thank goodness for U.S. Bank. There's a guy named Scott at U.S. Bank. The way we did this financially was with government credit cards, so the, uh, the uh, government purchase cards. If you use a government purchase card for more than $10,000, let alone $8.5 million in a single day, you trigger every financial uh, trigger for the U.S. banking system. Scott from U.S. Bank was on the phone with us pretty much constantly to ensure there was no fraud um, and that, no, this is really the way where the United States Air Force is going to do business. Two funny little moments from that day in those businesses. One of them was, uh, was uh, a guy who said, gosh, this is the guy who took three minutes to do his contract and get his first progress payment. And he said, you know, it's faster to do business with the Air Force than, it is, than you can get a beer at a bar in New York City. And the, uh, the second one was a small business that said, you know, because we get this progress payment today, we're not going to have to take out a bridge loan to be able to do the work you want us to do. It's only 51 contracts, but it demonstrates that we can do business differently and meet innovative companies where they are. We have to change the way in which we engage with innovative American companies in order to get access to the best in the world. And we're determined we're going to do it, and we've shown the way. The good news is my colleagues in the Army and the Navy said, hey, how'd you do that? And we gave them a copy of the one-page contract. And exactly, we, we found the path. And now we hope that the rest of the Defense Department will be able to follow. Finally, let me talk a little bit about accelerating defendable space. The, uh, the budget for space in, uh, in fiscal year 20 is $14 billion for what we call white space, for the unclassified space budget. That's a 17% increase over fiscal year 19. And as those of you who track this know, fiscal year 19 was a significant increase over the year before that. Space and Missile Systems Center has been reorganized. We uh, flattened it. Um, we took out three, uh, three, layers of, uh, three layers of bureaucracy there and created three program executive offices. They're getting their contracts out now in about 90 days. We have a Space Enterprise Consortium there now, which uh, was set up. We first put $100 million in that. We've now increased it to about $500 million there are 269 companies in the Space Enterprise Consortium. 80% um, of them have never done business with the United States Air Force before. And uh, these are companies that are supplying the commercial space industry. Uh, we, uh, we have about 90 days from when we put out a request to when we, secure, we, we, uh, we award contracts for the consortium. Uh, the first one that we did was a, was a very small business that does microsatellites. And the request was to put a microsatellite in geosynchronous orbit and see what we can do with it there. Um, we not only contracted quickly with this very small company, they are delivering within 12 months a microsat for the United States Air Force under that contract. We have established the Space Rapid Capabilities Office, which was uh, authorized in the last authorization bill. We have handpicked the director of the Space Rapid Capabilities Office, and we have given them their first three projects, all of which are are classified projects of high national importance uh, that we want to do very quickly uh, and very ambitiously. And finally, with respect to the Space Force, the initial work plan is now complete as the Air Force was given responsibility to come up with an initial work plan in 30 days. Um, and that work plan is done. Phase one um, would be uh, you know, the, the plan is that 90 days after the signature of legislation, if we have legislation passed this year, 
uh, by the Congress within 90 days, we would stand up the space staff in the Pentagon with 200 people, and, and our detailed planning continues on the work plan uh, for the Space Force. And with that, I will stop. Well, those were uh, some powerful remarks, and uh, I'm going to take a, a minute or two to ask a question, ma'am, if I could. Uh, just uh, two days ago, John Henderson, your uh, uh, Assistant Secretary for Installations, came out and said something to the effect of uh, uh, w the Air Force has more bills than it has the ability to pay for right now, and that without supplemental funding, um, something has got to give uh, in this uh, idea. Uh, certainly some of the weight of that statement that, that uh, he made was revolving around capacity and building capacity back in the Air Force. And I just want to highlight a couple of things that you said uh, as we go down this uh, so you can see it on the sides and the folks on uh, online can see it as well. Uh, capacity over the since the Cold War is really ramped down in the Air Force. And if uh, you look at just two specific years, you can see that uh, during the uh, Gulf War, we had um, quite a large amount of fighters, bombers, tankers, and airlift, uh, but that capacity has really fallen off to where we are almost uh, two-thirds of where we were back then. And the Secretary's initiative after those studies in the fall that she mentioned is basically painted here on the board. And, and when you see squadrons, that may not resonate with you, but if we just pick those four areas, in aircraft, you can kind of see that uh, we need 210 more tankers, uh, 182 more fighters, 75 more bombers, and 15 in rough order of magnitude uh, airlift platforms. And what that will do in capacity is actually raise us up significantly in the Air Force to where we've got about 96% uh, of the tanker force, that air bridge that we would need to go west or east uh, back in uh, either kind of scenario, 80% uh, of the bombers. But as your CSBA report is showing, even with that increase, we're still well below the thresholds that we were back in Desert Storm. And so it brings this question into, into the realm of if we were to go west to engage a threat like China, um, how, how would we do with regard to capacity uh, in order to engage that? And so let's transition a little bit to the budget. And this is the last four years of presidential budget that's uh, laid out here. And you can see it uh, for the uh, uh, visually impaired. The O&M is at the bottom, personnel, RDT&E. Uh, procurement, and then OCO, which we won't talk much about here, is at the top. And over the last four years, the Air Force budget has actually increased by 25%, which is significant, at least as if it is enacted the way it is projected to right now. And of that, um, procurement personnel and O&M uh, uh, costs or uh, funding has basically remained about 15%, but RDT&E Mm -hmm. is up at 80% increase over it was several years ago. Now, if you look at the funded requirements that are projected for this year, it's uh, 48 um, F-35s are on the books. 72 is the number, I believe, that uh, has been quoted that we need to start acquiring a year in order to bring us up to that uh, 386 squadron threshold. 12 KC-46 are in the budget for this year uh, en route to 210 total tanker growth. And the, over the course of the FIDEP, the next five years, that pretty much remains flat as far as the funded requirements go. And so this is the, the question is how does this, the budget that the Air Force has got with regard to funded 
um, initiatives actually uh, equal, or how, how is that compared to where we need to go, ma'am? Mm-hmm. Let me start out. You mentioned first the, the supplemental. Um, I understand that Senator Shelby has introduced a supplemental uh, for to recover from natural disasters today. And I want to highlight just how important that is. Um, in October, Tyndall Air Force Base got hit by Hurricane Michael, direct hit of a near Category 5 hurricane. 95% of the buildings were damaged, 11,000 people evacuated. All of the aircraft were either evacuated or eventually you know, recovered. Um, but that was over five months ago. Last Friday, I was at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska, and a third of it was underwater. We have been recovering Tyndall and trying to reduce additional damage and moving people and moving aircraft and recovering ground equipment for five and a half months without any supplemental funding from the Congress which means that we have been taking money from other accounts just to try to cope and get through, and we desperately need the supplemental to recover from the natural disaster that hit Tyndall and that has also hit Offutt. Yesterday, I had to make some decisions. You know, we are now, we are now well into this fiscal year. If we don't get a supplemental... We have to live within the budget that we've been given. And we have been robbing from other accounts and kind of cash flowing this within the Air Force to prevent further damage at Tyndall to facilities that are there and to continue operations in in displaced places. Um, And yesterday I had to make some decisions about, all right, we're, you know, here we are in March, almost halfway through, we're getting close to halfway through this fiscal year. And so there are 61 projects in 18 states that we have held commitment of funds for. These are not military construction projects. These are um, facilities, rehab projects. These are operations and maintenance kinds of projects um, because – and it's a a total amount of over $250 million because the cost at Tyndall is going to be just just to keep – just – without any military construction there this year, is going to be about $750 million of the cost of that storm. And we haven't even begun to estimate fully what the impact at Offutt is going to be. This storm, if we don't get a supplemental, is going to affect the rest of the Air Force and our ability to operate. We desperately need the supplemental to recover from the natural disaster that hammered Tyndall and Offutt. And, uh, and so there are other decisions we'll have to make if we don't get the funding by May and by June. We're, these are just the first decisions that, we're, that, we're, that I had to make yesterday. But it's 61 projects in 18 states are not going to happen because we have not gotten a disaster supplemental for Tyndall. Now, you also asked about, you know, where we are and where the budget is looking forward for the Air Force we need. Put in the Air Force We Need report on the 1st of March. Of course, our budget was well underway um, uh, with, res- with respect to it. This is – in the Air Force We Need is 2025-2030 timeframe. It is the Air Force We Need. It is not constrained by likely funds available or the budget. We think it is a reasonable or reasonably achievable if the country chooses to go in this direction to continue to pursue the national defense strategy. Uh, but it is uh, the FY20 budget 
is not heavily impacted by the Air Force We Need calculations, uh, to be very honest, because we didn't have it yet. Um, it, was, uh, it was really only completed initially with initial outlines in the fall and then the final submission on the 1st of March. Um, but it does tell us where we – gives us a roadmap for where we need to go, um, mission by mission, airframe by airframe. I, you know, I have to ask, and I know this is a really hard question, but is any of the supplemental requirements, is that coming from the border wall? No, no, that's an, a completely different issue. This is, about, this is about recovering from the natural disaster, the Hurricane Michael that hit Tyndall, and now the flooding uh, in Nebraska. Okay, great. Well, thank you, ma'am, for answering that. Uh, this, uh, the numbers that you've got up on the chart here, when you and the chief spoke about it in the fall, you talked about um, – um, all of the increases in aircraft and the acquisition flow from this point forward would be fifth-generation platforms. Mm-hmm. And this year, we've actually added uh, fourth-generation platforms in the mix, and it looks like that that's going to continue over the next several years. What changed? Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about tactical aircraft. And uh, first of all, the Air Force is all in on the F-35. It is a complete game-changing aircraft. And it is... Um, it is uh, it is not just an aircraft. It's a information fusion engine. It is kind of the quarterback of any fight. Uh, we are going to have a mixture of fourth and fifth generation aircraft well through the 2030s and beyond, potentially. When we looked at what does the national defense strategy task us to do, uh, it's a variety of missions at the same time. And as you well know, if there is a crisis in the Pacific, the first commander we're going to hear from is the commander of Pacific Command, and he's going to, he has a complete operations plan of everything that he needs, and we know what that plan entails. But as soon as you hang up the phone there, the next person who's going to call is General O'Shaughnessy from Northern Command, says, look, we're, you know, we're seeing increased, we've, we're starting to flow forces to the Pacific. I need to increase our homeland defense posture. And this is what I need in tankers and fighters and so forth. And then you hang up that phone, and this phone's going to ring, and it's going to be General John Hyten at Stratcom, who says, we're, you know, we're going to heighten levels of readiness, and there's a crisis in the Pacific. We need to increase our readiness posture in strategic command, um, and uh, we need to put more bombers on alert and more tankers on alert. And so when you look at the fully burdened global campaign plans, One of our constraints is capacity. We are seeing a decline in the number of fighters available, the increase in the average age of those fighters. And if we look at the whole system and the whole capacity over the next 10 to 20 years, one of the airframes that's not going to make it is the F-15C. It probably doesn't last through the mid-2020s. And so when, when people looked at what are the alternatives um, one of them was to say, all right, if we're, the F-15C is not going to make it, is there a way to e- keep our capacity fairly high and, and, and benefit from, honestly, the investments of some of our allies and the fact that there is an F-15 line, aircraft line still open? So without any military construction, without any really much downtime at all, local checkout, no changes in maintainers, minimal change in ground equipment and so forth, can you replace these F-15Cs that are not going to make it with F-15EXs so you keep your capacity fairly high 
through the 2030s and beyond for all of the missions we have to, to cover. And so that was the, the nature of the analysis and the decision as we went through the budget development uh, with, the, with the money that we have available. How do we keep capacity and increase our capability? Yes, ma'am. Well, that increase in capacity with the F-15X, it'll be fielded over the next probably 10 years, is a guess, depending on how, how rapidly the Air Force acquires them. Um, and in 2030, will they be stateside bound at that point? Uh, how will this help the joint warfighter in an expeditionary mindset? Well, if you look at what we expect to have in 2030 and beyond, there will still be fourth-generation aircraft and fourth-generation missions. Um, I, and I, it, we think it was the right thing to do to keep that capacity uh, high. Um, you know, I would be uh, I would be remiss, JV, to argue with you anything about fighters, because um, I know your background. But uh, but uh, it was a, a, a what do we think we can do um, with given the uh, given the funding available to not end up having to ground squadrons of F-15Cs with nothing to replace them. Yes, ma'am. Uh, really encouraging remarks that you had earlier on readiness levels and how we're ramping that up and uh, what the next uh, several years um, uh, have to offer for us uh, with your leadership. Um, so the last time you were here, we talked a little bit about uh, readiness levels in units, and, and and much of that is based on flying time. And, and if I could dwell on that little fighter area for a minute, um, guys, guys and gals weren't getting that much flying time, uh, particularly compared to the readiness levels that, that most of us knew when we were uh, younger uh, flying the jets. Um, could you give the audience an idea of where we are right now on the average fighter pilot, average flying time per year? Do you have uh, any, any idea what that is? Um, the, the budget for FY20 funds about the same number of fighting, flying hours as we had last year, and, and they think that those are probably maximum executable levels for all of uh, the missions we have to do. For a fighter, that would mean that they're flying two or three times a week plus simulator time, which is um, pretty good. Um, the uh, the one of the things that's different about uh, about flying in simulators today compared to uh, to third and fourth generation aircraft was you know you used to to uh, do the really hard flying and the more difficult missions in the air. Today it's kind of the reverse because there are in in the F thirty five as an example there are things that we don't do in the air that we do in the simulator. I was just out in Des Moines where we do a distributed training uh, for, for air crews. So we simulate. They're in the simulator anywhere in the world, or, but any, anywhere in the United States generally. And uh, we're able to create virtually um, environments and situations that, uh, that are much more difficult to replicate in, uh, in real life. And so, so some of our highest-end training is done in simulators. We're really taking a look at how we manage and think about simulation in the Air Force going forward because there's so much of it that is much richer in the simulated environment. There are some capabilities we just don't turn on in real life because we can't. Uh, we don't want to. Um, and, uh, and so two to three times a week for a fighter pilot and then time in the sim. And as the chief would say, you know, he was always a better pilot on a Friday than he was on a Monday because because these are very, very important skills to be constantly practicing. Yes, ma'am. 
Well, uh, I'm, I want to be selfish with my questions, uh, but we've got only about 15 minutes left. So if you do have a question for the secretary, please raise your hand. Uh, please make sure that it is a question as opposed to a statement and, uh, and identify yourself and where you're from. Uh, yes, sir. Pat. Hi, ma'am. Pat Host from Jane's. Uh, I want to ask about next generation air dominance. Uh, one of the uh, cornerstones, if you will, of any future next generation air dominance system is going to be the use of attributable aircraft in some way, whether that revolves around a fighter jet or some other type of aircraft or who knows. But one thing about attributable aircraft is even though the aircraft may be cheap and affordable, the payloads and sensors on these aircraft are assumingly not going to be cheap. How are you going to balance this cost equation when you are developing your concept for this future system? Uh, we are, as you know, testing some attributable aircraft and low-cost uh, loyal wingmen and some other things. I think we announced about two or three weeks ago that we had done a test uh, done a test of one that was uh, very low cost. Um, uh, you know, let me just give you one. It's not specific to the attributable, but it is uh, just an example of something that we've done recently that kind of gets at this kind of problem. Um, uh, when we were doing our light attack experiment, those are aircraft, but really the, one of the most important advancements on light attack was the network that connects them together and connects them with their, their command and control uh, nodes and with the, the people on the ground who might be designating targets. We set ourselves a goal of developing a low-cost, completely exportable, very high-quality network of, of technology for, um, to enable uh, command and control and light attack, share, sharing network. Uh, we were able to do that with mostly commercial off-the-shelf parts, all completely exportable. Um, so we don't have so, – because that, that whole project was about enabling our allies and partners. It doesn't do any good to be able to say, well, you can have the airplane, but we won't let you have the command and control network. You know, um, that, uh, that came in at a really low price point. Um, I think that uh, if the objective from the beginning on an attributable – is to is to have very low cost equipment on it, and you don't expect to maintain it for thirty years. You don't expect it to be you know really high fidelity all the time and and able to take off and land one hundred and fifty times in a month or something. It it changes the requirement, and so I think we've shown how with some of the prototyping and experimentation and new authorities we can move very quickly to do things in a different way. You just have to set up the problem right from the beginning. And, uh, and manage it that way. If I could pile on to that just for a second. Uh, Pat uh, triggered something, and you and I talked about your relationship with the other service secretaries and how this is an extraordinary time uh, for the three service secretaries to be doing so well. Um, your uh, Airborne Battle Management uh, Initiative, the system that uh, is coming is a system of systems. You're going to integrate uh, basically every sensor on the battlefield. Um, I talked to the... Uh, the, the gentlemen who were in charge of designing the next generation of Army helos uh, two years ago, year and a half ago. And I said, what is your intent on integrating F-35 sensors into your, your suite of, uh, of uh, systems? And they said, absolutely no intent to do that. 
and that was surprising. With your relationship right now and the requirement for all of these sensor suites to come together, what kind of cooperation are you getting from the other services here? Well, we do have a very good relationship among the service secretaries, and we've done a variety of things. We're actually working 20, 25 projects together at any one time, but one of them was a joint letter signed by all three of us to each of our service acquisition executives. So in my case, Will Roper, um, Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, that said all acquisition will be common user interface. Develop the, so it was a statement of intent and a mission order, and then we said, now come back to us and give us your plan in each service to implement that guidance. Any sensor, any shooter. So, so we may be detecting a missile launch off of a satellite, and the response may be coming from the bridge of an Aegis cruiser or from the cockpit of an F-16. We're about to, within the next couple of weeks, uh, release our science and technology strategy. It'll be a pretty different approach, but one of the priorities in it will be dealing with complexity and rapid information and decision flow across multiple platforms. So, so the service secretaries are united on it. We're now pushing our bureaucracies to implement it. Sometimes it may have costs associated with it, but every program needs to have a universal common interface to be able to talk to any other program. So it's the three-pronged plug uh, approach to all of our military equipment. Well, outstanding. I told you I was going to be selfish, didn't I? Ma'am, well, how about a question right here? Good morning, Vivian Mashi with Defense Daily. Um, I wanted to, excuse me, I wanted to ask you to elaborate a little bit more on the life cycle costs for the F-15 versus F-35. Uh, yesterday, General Dunford was testifying before the House Armed Services Committee, and he said he mentioned, you know, the cost of the F-35 would be, um, or I'm sorry, the F-15 has a 50% lower life cycle operating cost versus the F-35. Mm-hmm. Was he referring to, you know, the current? life cycle cost for the F-35, or was he projecting into the future? Just wondering if you can clarify that for the conversation. Sure. There is a cost per flying hour, and that includes not only all the consumables and other kinds of things on per flying hour, but also the expected life of the airframe, which is different for the F-35 and the F-15. Um, so so that is the, the numbers that uh, – and the, the way you explained that was correct. Um, and I think it does take into account at least projections – of uh, of the cost of the F thirty five for per flying hour, but it is you now a, a fourth generation fighter is less expensive to maintain than a fifth generation fighter. We're trying to drive down the cost of the maintenance and sustainment of the fifth generation fighter to at least be at the high end of a fourth generation fighter, um, but uh, we aren't there yet. It's a great question. Yes, sir. Good morning, ma'am. Terry Baker from Telefonics. I apologize up front. I'm retired Army, so I have a bias. <laughs> but I think this question that I have dovetails in with some of JV's comments about the common user interface, et cetera. The Army, as you know, is, is really trying to push along a uh, multi-domain operation concept. Every once in a while, I see some uh, Navy interest. I've seen less Air Force interest in that respect. I was wondering if you could comment on that of what the services are doing to come up with a common doctrine that may offer some synergy um, in a, in a budget-constrained environment. So that it does tell me that you're an Army guy because it was actually the Air Force that first started talking about multi-domain operations. <laughs> um, uh, and we're glad that the Army's coming along. 
Um, the, uh, the, uh, the General Dave Goldfein, who is the, the uh, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, has been talking about multi-domain operations um, for several years now. And, uh, and the Air Force and the Army have now, are now talking about it and using the same words, multi-domain operations. Um, and so, uh, so one of our parts of that, of course, is command control and communications, which very often rests very heavily on the Air Force. But we are no longer, you know, we're not really talking anymore about platform versus platform anything. It's all about the network. And, uh, and, and you know, it comes up in some unusual ways. I mean, when the chief was out visiting a particular program at a, at a manufacturing plant, and I won't really reveal which one, he said, uh, he said, and they were showing him, you know, this piece of equipment that they're building and things. And he said, uh, he said great, um, you know, uh, this also communicates with the such and such, which was, you know, these, these are two programs run by the same company or elements of the same company. And he said, um, so this communicates with, uh, with this other piece of equipment, right? And they looked at him like he was from Mars, and he said, you know, um, uh, if it doesn't communicate and it doesn't share and it doesn't learn, we're not interested in buying. It is multi-domain operations. Everything must share and connect and learn. Because speed to decision is is part of winning in warfare in the 21st century. That relevance thing. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Good morning, uh, Madam Secretary. Sandra Erwin with Space News. Um, it's been about a month since the um, legislative proposal for the Space Force has been submitted. And... One of the most common criticisms that we're hearing from members of Congress is that it's too heavy on bureaucracy and that they think it's there's too much military, uh, too many generals. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I mean, how, can, how could you do a service with less bureaucracy? seems that, I mean, do you think that's a reasonable criticism? And is, is there something that could be done to make it less heavy, top heavy? Thank you. The, uh, the concept and the piece of legislation that was put forward to, to implement the president's proposal would be a new uh, core underneath, or, or new force, a space force underneath the Air Force. Uh, there would be a new undersecretary, a chief of staff, and a vice chief of staff, and then the support for that, uh, that space force within the Air Force. They would be able to leverage off of existing acquisition, personnel, uh, planning, budgeting, all of those things that are in the civilian secretariat of the Air Force. Um, but, uh, but for a new chief of staff, you've got to have you know, a certain amount of support for that chief of staff uh, so that they can, can engage with their colleagues as a separate force under the Air Force. Um, and so, so that was the model. And we looked at models, everything from a medical corps, JAG corps-like model for a space force, all the way up to a completely independent department. Uh, the, where, the where the president's proposal settled was for a space force underneath the Air Force. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, my name is Neil Shabon. I'm with the American Legion. And my question was, um, you have a large demand for recruiting coming up and, and have had one for some time now. Uh, what successes have you seen? What has worked? What has not? And what do you find yourself looking forward into or you're seeing as the next big thing to kind of pull in, whether it's civilian or, you know, retention, retention rates, et cetera? 
Mm-hmm. Very good question. Let me uh, first of all, we've been meeting our recruiting targets. Um, the the uh, the army has had a little more difficulty, and for us, they're kind of the canary in the coal mine. If we worry if they're having problems, will we have problems in the future? We have not. Uh, so we're hitting our recruiting targets with some, with a few exceptions. We do have uh, we we aren't hitting some of our sub targets in some small specialty areas. One of them is special warfare, so our special operators, uh, air commandos, and we set up a special recruiting unit to particularly recruit for our air commandos. Um, uh, uh, the second one is cyber, and we continue to, to struggle to get cyber folks in. So on the, the uh, active side, we're doing okay. We're meeting our recruiting targets, a little less so in the reserve and guard, but it's a different kind of model there. I would also say that on the civilian side, we're also trying to drive down the amount of time it takes to hire someone into a civilian position in the Air Force. Now, about... 300,000 of the 690,000 airmen don't come to work in a, in a uniform. They come to work dressed like you. And so, so, um, so we need to be able to uh, hire. We're, at, we're all in a war for talent, right? Um, with unemployment hovering at 3 or 4% and a very strong economy, we need to be able to get highly capable people into the United States Air Force, particularly in acquisition, engineering, and science, it's a very competitive world. And so we, we've done a number of things. One of them is we restarted our summer intern program, um, so for particularly for engineers and scientists uh, to recruit the next generation out of college. We are using the authorities for rapid hiring that we've been given. Um, we just did a test up, at, uh, up in Boston where we set up our software factory called Kessel Run, just to, uh, we brought everyone there. So, you know, if you have to do a background check and a urine test and a drug something, and every, everybody was there, we did a one-day hiring event. I think they interviewed over 300 people for the software factory for Kessel Run and made uh, 60 job offers right there on the spot and brought people in the next day. So, so uh, if, if there's talent, we need to be able to move quickly to get the best talent and engage them in difficult problems. And it's uh, as important on the civilian side as it is on the military side. Unfortunately, the secretary is on a very tight schedule today, and she needs to be out the door about one minute ago. Um, <laughs> would you guys uh, take the, a minute to, to thank this uh, wonderful woman for coming in and sharing her time with us today? Thank you. Thank you.